Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and Morbius, more like more BS. Joining me today is Jeff Kanata. <laughs> I'm Jeff Kanata, and now I understand why they needed to make a movie called The Batman. Because there was a Batman coming out just a few weeks later. <laughs> Joining us today, she is film and TV critic at Fox Digital and the co-host of the Roll Calling podcast, Caroline Sita. I am Venom. <laughs> okay, nice. As inexplicable here as it is in the film Morbius. Indeed, indeed. Well, those are all oblique references to the fact that we're going to be reviewing Morbius today on the podcast. Before that, we got some Oscars follow-ups and some what we've been watching. Find more episodes of the podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Support us on patreon.com slash film podcast. We actually got an email this week proclaiming how valuable that support was. Jay from Newcastle, Australia, wrote into slash filmcast.gmail.com and said, just an email to say thanks. I unfortunately got COVID for the past week. Mm. So it was a perfect time to be a patron and support you guys and watch Scream with you all. Uh, I was saving a marathon for this, and it was such a great way to spend my isolated time away from friends and family. Thanks for the content. We'll continue to be a patron whenever possible, end quote. Uh, sorry, Jay, for your health issues. Hopefully you're feeling much better, but glad we are able to accompany you through your uh, recovery period. And uh, you can join us over at patreon.com slash film podcast for ad-free episodes as well as exclusive after darks. Before I get too far in the episode, uh, you know, every week we always spend, I would say, like three to four hours writing our opening statements, like our opening little pithy puns, right? And uh, I mean, it's a very intensive artistic process. Um, <laughs> Many options are considered and rejected, right? Um, and so, Caroline, you, you had written a few alternates. Is that right? Yeah, I was going to say you joke, but I did take it very seriously. Some, uh, <laughs> I just get nervous that one of you guys is going to yes. like say I am Venom, and then what would I be left with? Right. Uh, you'd oh, be it always it, it in always. J- Dave is the only person who never has to feel that pain because he yeah. puts himself first. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, the rest of us are always thinking, oh, the, the thing I thought of is so obvious. Everyone's going to think of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. It okay. Happens. All right. You know, maybe in the future I can go second or third or, or I'll mix it up a little bit. So you guys, so you you guys feel won't feel a that pressure. That, that anxiety. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it, w- it would be a delight if one of you had the same thing because it just shows we're all here simpatico on the podcast, you know? Mm. But Caroline, what are some of your other alternates there? Mm-hmm. So one I had, I believe this is a quote from the movie and or it's just something I wrote down in a fever dream while watching the movie. But I think at one point Morbius says, you don't want to see me when I'm hungry. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. You wouldn't, you that's wouldn't true. like me when I'm hungry. Yes. 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 Which I found hilarious. Excellent. Um, Excellent. I also found hilarious when he makes some sort of very serious reference to like, the bats welcomed me like a brother. Yeah. <laughs> and then my third and final option was that I was going to say that I was the one who coined the nickname Vampire Murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Those are all great. Those are all was, great. Thank you. I, I was going to say oh, go ahead, uh, go ahead, one of my other options was going to be Morbius, more like Lesbius. Mm-hmm. No, no. It's, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like instead of more, it's less. I was ah, so good. Yeah, I get it. Lesbius. <laughs> but... Yeah, I, I mean, was gonna, I, mine was I'm gonna surprised be, you uh, didn't come up with that, Jeff. That was my, I thought you might yeah, duplicate that one, you know? Luckily, I did not. <laughs> uh, I did I did have one that I thought was uh, perhaps a little too harsh, uh, which was uh, 
last week, uh, I had a colonoscopy and did my taxes. And I also saw Morbius. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all of it. That's mm-hmm. the whole thing. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. Well, anyway, Caroline, th- thank you for those uh, alternates. And we're so delighted that you've joined us today again. Uh, filling in for Divinger Hardwar, uh, who's just had a baby. Um, we do expect Divinger will return to the podcast next week. Um, but we are extremely grateful that you're here in the meantime, Caroline. So thanks for joining us again. Oh, I'm so excited to be back. So last week we talked a little bit about the controversy at the Academy Awards over Will Smith's slap. Because we are human beings breathing <laughs> on planet Earth. <laughs> Indeed. I don't, I don't want to belabor it too much this week. I don't, we're not going to spend like 40 minutes talking about it, but... I do just wanted to mention like a couple things that have happened since last week that kind of uh, are, are added developments to the story. Um, the Academy was saying, you know, they're, they're investigating all these possible options like expulsion or suspension or whatever. And Will Smith seeing the long and winding road that that would go down was just like, you know what? I'm out. And he resigned uh, on April 1st over the slap and he's just like i'm not i'm not gonna do that anymore he resigned uh, as an actor he's no longer an actor he resigned from the he academy. quit his job as actor he resigned from the academy which means he can no longer vote and he's not gonna get those sweet sweet screeners at the end of the year oh, what is he gonna do how's he gonna say I, I, don't, I don't know how he's gonna see all those <laughs> movies anymore it's gonna be really challenging um I, he he can however still be nominated and win awards despite not being in the academy um so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And of course, uh, Apple won uh, the award for best picture this year for its film Coda. Their next big film is a movie called Emancipation uh, that's starring Will Smith. And I think it's like over a hundred million dollars. It was going to be their big awards play for next year. And they'll be very curious to see how that's going to play out. Um, Are they still going to release it on schedule? next year um are they gonna change their plan is there gonna be awards uh focus for will smith it remains to be seen uh the other thing is that the hollywood reporter reported that uh there is a upcoming action thriller that will smith was supposed to star in called fast and loose and uh it was supposed to be directed by david lich who was involved in john wick and Apparently, uh, Netflix has pumped the brakes on developing that movie in the wake of the Will Smith slap. More um, like won't Smith, right? <laughs> my God. <laughs> hey, yo, how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> Less BS. Yeah. I mean. I, how dare it, you throw shade at me? No, yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's fair. It's fair. It's totally. Won't Smith is totally fair. I was. I learned it by watching you, Dave. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. I think it's uh, it's interesting to see how people have reacted uh, to, to the slap, and like, I don't know. I, I feel like to to me, it has felt like an incongruous reaction because it's like, yes, mm-hmm. the slap was uh, obviously not a good look. I think, um, and Will Smith apologized for it, and many people have expressed uh, their concerns about it in the in the wake of it. But the idea that Will Smith is still like not still a bankable star, which it feels like is what people care the most about, makes all of this stuff in response feel to me like an overreaction. You know, like um, 
How long till like, he? How long till he slaps someone in a movie? I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I don't recall him slapping someone in a movie until now. No, I'm uh, saying punches that alien in Independence Day. Yeah, he definitely has punched people. You know, no, he I'm saying how long yeah. till the movie does a meta like self reflexive, ha ha? Don't we all remember this moment? Yeah, I don't, I don't it's know. It's gonna happen. I, I, I'm gonna say two to three years, Jeff. Two to three years, we'll probably see something like that. But anyway. I just did, I did want to note uh, that there there have been a couple developments, and I, I do think it's still unfolding. Emancipation that's the thing that I'm really going to be curious about, like what how that's going to play out. But anyway, um, just wanted to mention it. Uh, did you guys have any other thoughts on this or any uh, any other reactions? Um, I wonder if this will be a situation where a lot of people are like putting out press releases and commenting on these things as this feels like such a topic of the moment. I wonder if it's going to be one of those things where quietly everything kind of goes back to normal as I personally kind of feel like it should like considering sort of the very, very terrible things that people in Hollywood do and then can continue to get work like this sort of bizarre, definitely inappropriate reaction. But I would say on a scale of bad things someone has done, like ultimately pretty low, the fact that this is being punished, you know, harsher than, (laughs) you know, much worse allegations does seem like a little bit unbalanced as you were saying. And I wonder if that will, if it will even out once kind of the, the spotlight is off this moment. Right. I mean, well, yeah. you know, Jared Carmichael, uh, uh, had a monologue in, on Saturday night live about it. He hosted Saturday night live this week. And, uh, he, he pointed out that, you know, it, it feels like it was like 15 years ago that <laughs> yes. Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Uh, yes. and, and I feel like that's just the way the world is now. It's going to be in, in, in two months, we're going to be like, oh man, do you remember how, cra- do you remember that thing that happened? Like it, it's been one week and it already feels like it's been a year and a half. So it's, it's it, because we are, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I am injecting takes into my veins at a massive velocity per hour. You know, no, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just reading all the take. I'm done. I'm done now. Um, this is probably the last thing I'm going to say about this for a very long time, but, uh, well, it's just the way yeah. the world is now. Everything mm-hmm. wor- moves at a blistering pace and there's yeah. some new outrage and some new crazy thing that we're all consumed by and we're all deciding what color the dress is. And, and then we're, <laughs> you know, and then you know, it's, it's Time, like, timely reference, Jeff, timely reference. Yeah, see, doesn't that seem like 400 years ago? <laughs> Would it that surprise was you to learn Tuesday. that was three weeks ago? <laughs> that was Tuesday. <laughs> I was thinking about that thing. I don't know if you guys followed this, but Taylor Swift, when she released, re-released her Red album, had this whole video that was sort of like um, invoking Jake Gyllenhaal and her relationship with him. And there was a whole week where it felt like. Jake Gyllenhaal will never work again. Like this will tarnish his image forever. Mm-hmm. And then there he was at the Oscars presenting. Like everyone had completely forgotten. No one cared anymore. And I'm wondering if the Will Smith thing will ultimately kind of be like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's very possible. We'll see. Uh, you know, six months from now, are, are people still going to be thinking about this, talking about this? The fact that it was on stage, it, it, like uh, I think what the the message from the Academy is clear, Caroline. If you do stuff off stage, not during yeah. the ceremony, uh, and it's terrible, completely fine. Um, but on stage during the ceremony, how dare you profane this sacred space? Exactly. You know? That does uh, seem to be their guiding principle. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. Um, it's still unfolding, though. Speaking of Saturday Night Live, Jeff, uh, there was a short on Saturday Night Live uh, that you can find it on Twitter and on YouTube. Uh, It's called Short Movies, but basically a song 
that came out on Saturday Night Live that was broadcast about the, you know, <laughs> to summarize it in a very square way, it's about the virtue of short movies, right? Yeah. It's this, this kind of rap song about short movies and uh, why, you know, people prefer movies that are like 90 minutes, you know, 100 minutes. Netflix Today tweeted out, like quote tweeted that sketch and wrote good idea and then linked to a subsection of their website called short ass movies, short dash ass movies. I should point out short dash ass movies, not short space ass movies. That's a different type of movie. <laughs> um, movies about short asses. It, yes. Yes. Or it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a m- movies about asses that are short. That's another way you could read it, Jeff. Yeah. yeah um, a, a, a really, really small donkey. Uh, indeed. So, here is it's what is just on all the Shrek movies. <laughs> <laughs> Short ass movies. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you. I couldn't let it pass. It's okay. It's okay. Donkey. Donkey. That's my I have Shrek to impression. Say, Donkey. I have, to say, <laughs> I have to say the movies on the Short Ass Movies page is kind of a. Uh, it's like this extremely random hodgepodge. So it's like, I think the the sortation is like, uh, they filter out any movies that are what? Like 80 to 100 minutes. And then they kind of subdivide them into categories. So if you go to short ass movies, it's just like popular on Netflix. Here are the movies popular on Netflix, okay? That are in the short ass movie section. Rescued by Ruby, which is about... Uh, which is about 90 a, minutes a long. Dog, right? A state trooper partnering with a felt like to... Ch- chasing his dream to join an elite K9 unit, a state trooper partners with a fellow underdog uh, who is a shelter pup named Ruby. That's Starring Grant r- Gustin of The Flash. Indeed. Uh, the Kevin James movie Home Team, uh, the Macaulay Culkin 1994 film Richie Rich, and Peter Rabbit 2. These are some of the popular short ass movies on Netflix. Um, pretty, uh, pretty random assortment. Pretty random well, assortment. Gotta I put mean, that out there. Yeah. To be fair, <laughs> the joke in the song is how random the assortment is, too. Indeed. Indeed, that is true. That is true. So Netflix did uh, f- fulfill the prophecy of short-ass movies and, and how random and weird they are. But uh, got to say, I appreciate this. I appreciate this. You know, I appreciate this as a thing, and people should check it out as a as a way if, if you want to watch a short movie and that doesn't take up your whole, whole night. Ooh, you know what's on there? The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. The Great first movie one? and yeah, the original. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, thanks Netflix. Good wreck. I remember I standing s- in line outside the Metro Four Cinema in my hometown to see that movie in 1991. Is it 1990? And it's an hour and 33 minutes. Yeah, I have to say, it's a mercy these days when you go walk into a theater or go to see a movie and you see that runtime and it's short. You know, like oh yeah. As somebody who do, who does what we do on a weekly basis, you know, recording this podcast, it's just the the movies have been so unrelentingly long in the year 2021. And so whenever you see a short movie, a short ass movie, it's a delight. It's a delight. Uh, yeah. About a billion D people sent me that uh, link to that song, which I appreciated. Thank you, billion D people. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I definitely have voiced that a n- number of times on this show and I stand by it. I think uh, being able to, yeah. There are some movies that I enjoy luxuriating in yes. and I will appreciate the long runtime. Once they in a while. They don't once all have to be what three hours. Yeah. Once, yeah. But like every week, which is what it felt like for a long time? Yes. Anyway. Uh, well, 
those are a couple of uh, things that have happened in the last week. Again, check out that short-ass movie section on Netflix. Um, and I think shortly we should get to what we've been watching. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am sometimes intimidated by the world of coffee. I'm pretty new to this world, and so when I walk into a coffee shop, I'm overwhelmed with the options. That's why I'm such a big fan of our sponsor today, Trade Coffee. All you got to do is go to the website, you answer a couple questions, and you get your own personalized variety of coffees delivered fresh to you as often as you like, with no gimmicks. I went to the website, answered some questions, and I was given Peixoto coffee, delicious and smooth. I really appreciated it. Trade Coffee connects customers to the freshest and best tasting coffees they've ever made at home by partnering with the country's best craft roasters. These are independent businesses from big cities and small towns. Trade customers are truly impactful for these independent roasters, often being the largest source of, gro- of new growth for them. And I like the fact that when you go to the website, you can kind of read up on their stories and really feel connected to the coffee that you're drinking. Trade also has a first match guarantee. They're so confident they'll match you right the first time that if they don't, they'll take your feedback and an actual coffee expert will work with you to send a brand new bag for free. But the thing is, Trade's coffee team actually taste tests thousands of coffees to keep 450 kinds live and ready to ship every day. There's no one perfect coffee, but there is a perfect coffee for you, and Trade's human-powered algorithm will find it. So whether you are a seasoned veteran in the world of coffee, or you're just coming to this new like me, uh, Trade's real coffee experts will know exactly what to recommend for you. They deliver a bag of freshly roasted coffee as whole beans or ground, however you want to brew it at home, and they guarantee you'll love your first order or they'll replace it for free. Trade has delivered over 5 million bags of fresh coffee with more than 750,000 positive reviews. And right now, we got a special offer for our listeners. Trade is offering new subscribers a total of $30 off your first order, plus free shipping when you go to drinktrade.com slash filmcast. That's more than 40 cups of coffee for free when you go to drinktrade.com slash filmcast. Get started by taking their quiz at drinktrade.com slash filmcast and let trade find a coffee you'll love. That's drinktrade.com slash filmcast for $30 off. Thanks to Trade Coffee for sponsoring us today. All right, folks, let's talk about what we've been watching. Jeff Kanata, hit us up with some stuff you've been watching. Well, I want to start with uh, a movie called Death on the Nile, mm. which uh, is a movie that I wanted to actually go see in theaters. I was I was kind of excited about this movie. I, I did not see the first Kenneth Branagh Hero Poirot movie. Oh, my God. Hercule Poirot. Hercule Poirot, I believe. That's what I said, obviously. Hercule Poirot. Anyway. You're butcher, Jeff. Anyway, continue. Uh, I like Poirot. Uh, I, I, I like the David <laughs> Suchet Poirot. Yeah. Uh, I was always a fan of the Poirot on... Uh, uh, I am begging you to try to say Poirot correctly. <laughs> the, uh, I am begging. It's the Poirot for Miro. <laughs> uh, All right. So you, did you see uh, Murder on the Orient Express? I did not. Yeah, I did okay. not see Murder on the Orient Express. So I saw Ori- Murder on the Orient Express. I found it to be a solid mystery thriller. Um, my wife is the biggest Agatha Christie fan I know, listens to multiple Agatha Christie podcasts, and she was not a huge fan of Murder on the Orient Express, but uh, it wasn't completely terrible. So we're like, hey, maybe Death on the Nile, they'll build on uh, what they accomplished with Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, and I, I love a Branagh. I'm a big yeah. Branagh fan. Yeah. Um, and Academy Award winning Kenneth Branagh. 
Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's man. I mean, uh, you know, when I was studying Shakespeare in college, that's when he was doing all the Shakespeare movies and I was all about him. I was all about him. His Henry V, his Much Ado, his Hamlet, of course. Um, so I, you know, and I like I like that Thor movie and I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but I didn't get to see the first one. I, I'm not an Agatha Christie fan. have not read this book or any Agatha Christie books to be fr- frank. Um, but I, so I love a mystery. I love a good mystery. So I cannot speak to how accurate or authentic Mm -hmm. this is a translation of the Agatha Christie novel. I have also not seen the previous 19, what, 78 Death on the Nile. Have not seen that film, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think has a good reputation. But this Death on the Nile film, directed by Kenneth Branagh, blew my friggin' mind. (laughs) This movie is bonkers <laughs> like cuckoo crazy bonkers man mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. is even going on in this movie this movie is like a parody of itself i was like this is a this is a this is a send-up right this movie is not serious right right <laughs> this movie is cuckoo crazy bonkers town it is like okay i need to spoil something that happens very close to the beginning mm-hmm. of this movie mm-hmm so if you don't want any spoilers for Death on the Nile, skip forward a little bit <laughs> yes. because I need to spoil something that yes. absolutely, yes. I, I like, I couldn't yes. handle what was happening. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Continue. They, they Batman's begins Hercule Poirot. They Batman begins this character. They, okay. So no, Brad, no, 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 no. You are overstating. They Batman begins Hercule Poirot's mustache. No, no, no. I would say, yeah, yeah, no. But, <laughs> but like his whole backstory, like wh- why he is who he Okay, there's one thing I know about Poirot. It is he's really smart and he solves mysteries. That's enough. <laughs> That's enough. Am I so curious about what he did before he was solving mysteries or why he's so, he's so... Committed to it? I do not. I do not. He is the least important character, just like Sherlock Holmes is the least important character in the Sherlock Holmes mystery. He's a conduit for us finding out the information about the interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. But be that as may, as it may, the Batman <laughs> begins. So, so the thing we know about Poirot, or at least I know about Poirot, is is even with David Suchet and all the all the uh, versions of him that I've seen. Clearly, this is a book thing. He has a big, silly mustache. Brana has taken that to an extreme in, in the silliest, biggest, bushiest, craziest mustache that literally tickles his earlobes on either side and is just dancing on his face, right? <laughs> big, obnoxious mustache. And, and there's a charm to it. It's like, okay, if you're going to do this character and the character has a goofy mustache, let's go for it. And he does. But what this movie decides to do is to give you a reason why he has this insane mustache. And it's because he gets a scar that is the exact shape of the mustache. Wow. He is, was... he is disfigured by like mortar fire or whatever during World War One, and has this massive gash in his face. That is it is the, there is a reveal where he turns his head and shows you the mustache shaped scar on his face. So they don't just Batman begins it, they like Joker it. 
He's but got wait, like there's a joker. More. But wait, there's more, Caroline. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because it is not enough. It is not enough to have one reason why he would grow that mustache. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There must be, of course, a secondary reason, which is his commanding officer to whom he <laughs> looks up has the exact same mustache and is killed in a tragic way in front of him. It's it's a wow. tribute to that officer and also to cover up his uh, disfigured face. Two reasons for the ridiculous <laughs> mustache in the first 20 minutes of this movie. This, I, I'm thinking like most unnecessary origin stories ever. And it's I'm, like what comes to mind is Han Solo's name in, in Solo. Yes. And like... Wolverine's jacket in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Like, you can now add Death on the Nile, Hercule Poirot's mustache to the list, basically. It is it is so cuckoo crazy bonkers as far as I'm concerned. It is like, we spend so much time to get to that reveal. I'm like, this is a, this is a parody. It is a parody. There's no, there's no way to read that moment that is not absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I and, mean, we should say it's played completely straight. Like, oh, there is no winking yes. at the camera. They, the, the movie does not, in my opinion, the movie does not seem to think that it is funny but, in any way. Dude, multiple times this movie does really goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. Really goofy, Dave. Yeah. And, like, yeah. And I, I have to know that Brana, on some level, gets that it's goofy. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I get. There's some stuff that certainly seems, you know, intentionally goofy. Yeah, he does an entire movie <laughs> with the ridiculous mustache, and then goes. I mean, I don't know if this is in the book. Is this in the book? Do, can you ask your wife? Is this in the book? Because I can't imagine it's in the book. Uh-huh. But it, are you going to give away a spoiler from the end, or what's happening? No, no, no. I, no. Okay, yeah. <laughs> the. We do. He does an entire movie with the ridiculous mustache, and then goes, "This mustache is too ridiculous. I have to explain it multiple ways." Um, I can I can guarantee you that the mustache origin story is not the same in the book. Um, that's what I will say. So, but what do you think of the rest of the movie, non mustache related, Jeff? I, I think I don't think that that sequence is out of place for the tone of the rest of the movie. Uh-huh. This is a movie that has a lot of really big stars. Annette Benning, uh, um, uh, Gal Gadot. And, and it, is, it, is a, it is all over the place in terms <laughs> of tone. And it, hey, again, I haven't read the book. I don't, I, I don't know this character super well. But there's one thing I sort of expect from a murder mystery, and that is a murder and a mystery. <laughs> uh-huh. Usually, uh-huh. the way you start these stories, and correct me if I'm wrong, Caroline, is that someone dies. Uh-huh. And then you have your super sleuth figure out who done it. Hence, who done it? This movie. Nobody dies for a long ass time. Yeah, you're, long you're, ass you got time, a good Dave. like hour into the movie before. No one's does. dying. There's no one dying <laughs> in this movie. Poirot is hanging out 
with all these people who we assume are suspects for the crime that has not happened. <laughs> There's no crime. Well, I, you know, I think, Jeff, you're not even... Here's the worst part of it, too, is in the post credit scene of Murder on the Orient Express, they hint that there has been a death on the Nile, and it's supposed to be kind of like a Marvel-esque stinger. Oh, uh, I did not know that. Movie. Completely retconned. Completely retconned <laughs> by the beginning of this movie. So they're com- they're annihilating their own mythology from the movies. Every every one of these stories works the same right way. We're introduced to our cast of suspects, and we're trying to figure out who who's the person that is the murderer. In this movie, you're trying to figure out who's going to die because no one has died. It is so weird. It's so weird. This movie is super weird to me. It's super weird. It's Thank you weird. for supporting my my thesis. Yeah, I mean, I would. I think my wife would use a different term. I think she'd call it an abomination. Um, <laughs> is the term she would use. I will just say, as someone watching the movie, I found it to be strangely unengaging, and also you just can't help but think about the calamitous PR nightmares that have been endured by all the stars of this movie in the time since the movie came out. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Letitia Wright and her anti-vax state, uh, you know, stance and uh, Army Hammer and the accusations against him. Meanwhile, he's being shown as an incredibly desirable man in the movie. Yeah, it's super. Um, that's super weird too. Very uncomfortable. Yeah. Gal Gadot and her uh, support of the IDF, you know, and Imagine Video, and it's just like, man, these people have all been through a lot, you know, and kind of. <laughs> rightfully uh, looked down upon in the public eye since this movie was supposed to come out in, I think, December of 2019, originally. So the movie did not survive unscathed. And everything Jeff said about it is true. It's Tonally, it's very bizarre. The pacing is all off. The mystery itself is, like, pretty unsatisfying, you know. Did you watch this with your family, Jeff? No. My wife and I watched it. She fell asleep. And I, I kept nudging her going, are you, can you, are you like, what, what, what? And she did, she just was sleeping. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, would you recommend uh, Death on the Nile, Jeff? Not even a little bit. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, but I do think that, that um, little meme, Gal Gadot saying, enough champagne to fill the Nile is so funny that maybe it was worth the movie coming out just so that it could give us that ridiculous snippet you're you're referring to the fact that during the movie gal gadot says you know we have enough champagne to fill the nile and it, it basically is a moment that people thought was so poorly performed that it has become a meme like people have used it as a meme online for a variety of reasons yes um peak peak terrible <laughs> line delivery <laughs> Yeah, um, the movie's pretty rough, and it it made me retroactively question whether or not Murder on the Orient Express was actually worse than it was. You know, like, <laughs> I go, go back, I was like, I kind of enjoyed Murder on the Orient Express. Was it really that this bad? You know? Um, but and, oh, uh, oh, oh, another thing I forgot to mention, Dave. Yes. This movie has, I think, all-time terrible green screen. Mm-hmm. All t- like all time bad green screen usage where actors clearly were nowhere near the location that they are supposed to be. 
and it is it is it is so glaringly bad green screen where it, 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 i don't know if you agree with that or not but i was just i couldn't believe it i was like this is this movie didn't look cheap at all and yet the comp the <laughs> the compo the composition of the uh, green screen looked just unbelievably amateurish to me you know i um, I posted on Letterboxd my review of this movie. I said, why do the background, why does the Nile look like I made it with MS Paint? <laughs> and somebody responded to my Letterboxd and they messaged me, they, they shared with me the VFX reel for the film. And you just realize how much work went into this movie. Like from a VX, VFX standpoint, there's tons of VFX shots. And I, I think, Jeff, that was my, my first reaction watching it was, wow, this looks terrible. That was my first reaction watching it. Then I watched the VFX reel, and you realize like how much work goes into a movie like this. And here's the charitable reaction is that it's extremely highly stylized in a way that looks bad to me. <laughs> you know, like that's that's the charitable interpretation is that like Kenneth Branagh was going for a specific look, and maybe he didn't quite achieve it, or maybe he did, and it just wasn't just wasn't the look that I thought was appropriate. You know? There there's another moment again here's another potential spoiler so heads up but this is another example of how the tone in this movie is cuckoo crazy bonkers there's a moment where kenneth brenner <laughs> walks up walks up to the the great pyramids in egypt yes and there was a man flying at a no kite. point at no point do you believe he is actually at the Great Pyramids? Anymore? Oh, no, 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 at no point. But <laughs> even weirder, there is a man <laughs> standing about, I don't know, a third of the way up on mm -hmm, the side mm -hmm. of the, yep. the Great yep. Pyramid, flying a kite. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. He walks up to the base of the, the pyramid, yep. looks up to, at that man. This is, this is a... A chance encounter. This is him just happens to be there, sees a man flying a kite, walks up to said man. That man looks down and goes, Poirot! They know each other. It's just happens. <laughs> it just happens to know the man standing at the base of the pyramid. I, I do think that is explained later, though, Jeff. I do think that is so explained later. so weird, but, man. But I agree that it comes off as quite weird. I agree it comes off as quite weird. Anyway. How dare you defend this movie, David? <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like you've sold me on watching it now, honestly. <laughs> well, that is Death on the Nile. It's streaming right now on HBO Max and Hulu. And unfortunately, it did very poorly at the box office. There is not going to be a Poirot cinematic universe, unfortunately. Um, I well, think now we know, the last... we know all the secrets about the mustache. What else is there to tell? <laughs> it's true. It's true. I think this will be the last we see of this version of Poirot, which is kind of a bummer because I think it is. it would be nice to have kind of adult-aimed uh, you know, mystery thrillers at the box office. But if only, if only there was someone making those who, who, whose name is Ryan Johnson. Yes. Well, you know. And wasn't making them for Netflix. <laughs> so I mean, who cares? It's still made and they're going to be great. Indeed. All right. That's Death on the Nile. Hey, it's time for me to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, Quip. You know, good health starts with good habits. And Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials that you need to care for your mouth. I've been using Quip for many years now. 
I use it every single day. And I am so glad we are a multi-quip household. The Quip electric toothbrush loved by over 7 million mouths of which my family is four because uh, everybody in our house has a Quip which has timed sonic vibrations with 30 second pulses to guide a dentist recommended two minute clean. I love it. I don't have to think about it. I always brush for two minutes. I'm telling you, honestly, I don't think I probably brushed for two minutes once in my life before I got a quip, but now I do it every time and I don't have to think about it because of those timed sonic vibrations. It just makes it easy. Plus, it's got this cool, lightweight, sleek design for adults and kids. My five-year-old uses a quip. My wife uses a quip. No wires, no bulky charger to weigh you down. Plus, you got that cool multi-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. I have the mirror in my bathroom. Quips on it. So easy, so great. Reusable handles in a range of sleek metal hues including their best-selling all-black, which is the one I use, and the all-pink, which is the one my daughter uses, as well as bright plastic colors, sure to make a pop to your bathroom counter. And on top of your brushing, you can upgrade your Quip with new smart motors. Track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app and earn amazing rewards like free refills, products, Target gift cards, and more. And, you know, brushing is not the end of your oral care routine. The complete routine includes the anti-cavity toothpaste, which Quip also offers, and two different ways to floss. The floss string that expands to clean and the reusable floss pick that replaces over 180 disposable picks with every refill. They also have gum that's sugar-free and long-lasting in their mint flavor. comes with a dispenser. Everything you need for oral care. If you go to quip.com slash filmcast right now, you will get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash filmcast. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Quip, the good habits company. Jeff Canato, what else have you been watching? Well, I just thought I'd bring this out. I, I was traveling this weekend. My, uh, my father-in-law had a birthday, so I, I uh, flew to LA <clears throat> with my family. So I didn't get a chance to watch a ton of stuff. But one thing that did happen is uh, hanging out with the in-laws means you watch what the in-laws want to watch, which is not a bad thing. But uh, my in-laws uh, definitely have... Um, uh, a, an appreciation of older movies. They like watching older stuff. And uh, a movie came on that I haven't thought about in way too long. And it, and it, I think if I was forced to look over the history of movies and say, what are your top 10? This movie would be in my top 10 of all time. It is a movie I adore. It had been way too long since I saw it. I sat down and watched it again and was like, oh my God, this is so good. And I thought I'll bring it up on the film cast on the off chance that there is anyone listening who has not seen The Sting, which is Paul Newman, Robert Redford, 1973, I think. Unbelievable. It was one of those movies that my dad had on VHS 
Mm. And at one point when I was pan, whatever Pan and age, scan or widescreen, Jeff? Oh, come on. It was all pan and scan. We didn't have the mm-hmm. option of, for widescreen in 1987 when I saw it or whatever. Um, my dad, you know, I my dad had a very robust collection of VHS movies, none of which he paid for. None of which were in the box. Uh-huh. All of which were on the long play yes. VHS, three movies on a single tape. That he got, oh, love it, love it. That he got did, did off he, of like, HBO. Tape it off of TNT or whatever. Or oh like- yeah, he recorded it from from <laughs> HBO or Showtime or whatever, you know, whatever he had. And it was a there was a piece of Scotch tape on the front of the thing that had all three movies written on it. Amazing, love it. She, love she it. knew what was on that tape. And anytime I stayed home from school sick or had a you know special weekend or something, uh, I was always dad recommend me a movie. And he would go to these big cases, these like bookcases that he had that folded out and had all the VHS movies in them. And uh, he would find a movie that was appropriate for my age at the time. And he would hand me movies like, this is the movie you're going to watch. Don't even ask me what it is. Just do it. Maybe that's why I love not knowing. But um, The Sting was one of those movies. Um, And it is phenomenal. It is an incredible... um, con artist movie it's a it's about a, a, a big con these two characters paul newman character and robert redford pull off this incredible con and the way it comes together the it's stylized it's set in the i don't know 30s or 40s or something um but in the time when like you know uh flim flam artists and uh, jeeper jabber and all you know it's like those guys they all had they, there was like a a code of ethics and uh there's this wonderful sequence toward the end where they're like putting together this con and they have to assemble a team, a, a bunch of people and all these, all these dudes come to them and women too, I guess uh, m- many more dudes, obviously um, of that time, but uh, they come to them and like try to sell them on their uh, experience level in, in, in conning people. And they're like, you know, interviewing them like they would, uh, uh, you know, a, a job interview, but they're like, do you know how to run the wire? Yeah, I know how to run the wire. See, you know, it's, it's, it's so great and it really holds up. It's beautiful. And it was one of the first times I think I watched it in full widescreen because it was on whatever service we were looking. I don't even know what service it was on that we were watching, but it was in, in widescreen and it looked great. And uh, I just wanted to bring that movie up because if there's anybody that hasn't seen The Sting, you owe it to yourself. It is truly one of my favorite movies of all time. Jeff, I'm just going to put this out there. Um, it's on my list of shame. It's on my list of Whoa, shame. Whoa, really? It. Yeah, I know. Oh, I Dave. I've seen if Butch I Cassidy's Summer Movie Kid, Wager. You know, but I haven't, this is their follow-up, and I haven't seen that yet. If I, Jeff, um, I'm just going to put this out there. It's also on my uh, <laughs> to catch up oh, list as well. Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm so glad I brought it up. I, yeah. I'm so glad I brought I mean, this, this will literally be in my top 10 of all time movies. It's wow. truly all right. a classic in every sense of the word, completely holds up. You see why Paul Newman and Robert Redford were massive movie stars. Uh, it, the writing is great. The mu- it's, it's got the, that song, The Entertainer. You're like... And it's so... It's just dripping with style and it's so well-directed. It's George Hill's the director... Ah, it's 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 a classic. You guys, uh, my strongest strongest urging to to sit down and watch that movie. All right, I own the movie on video on demand, so uh, I just haven't gotten around to watching it. But uh, the Sting is the movie that's on Jeff Kanata's top ten of all time list, and glad you got to connect with your parents over that movie. Um, my wife's awesome. parents, but yeah, yeah. 
Um, your wife's friends. That's what I mean. Um, okay, uh, that's what Jeff Kanata has been watching. Um, I mentioned. I'll mention a couple quick things. Uh, I had a chance to watch Parallel Mothers. I actually watched this in, in advance. I tried to watch this in advance of the Oscars, and I started it, and I didn't finish it because the Oscar ceremony came on, you know, and I, <laughs> I, I had to watch it. Then I finished it after the Oscars. Um, this is Pedro Almodovar's movie uh, starring Penelope Cruz, who was nominated for Best Actress. She did not win. Uh, I think Penelope Cruz is amazing in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. She's she's awesome. Um, Caroline, have you seen this movie? I have, yeah. I really loved it. Yeah. I thought the movie is pretty good. I think that my my main issues of the movie are that I think the plot line, the plot is a little bit too twisty and soapy for my just my personal taste. Um, feels a little bit too much like a soap opera in, in a in a not great way, uh, in my opinion. In the sense that, like, some of the decisions that the characters make feel a little bit too implausible uh, to me. Um, and also, there is a subplot in the movie that has to do with uh, the Spanish Civil War that. I just didn't really have a frame of reference for it. And so like emotionally did not hit me as I think it would have, if I had more familiarity with historical events, but putting those aside, putting my, my, those are my own personal issues aside. uh, Penelope Cruz is just incredible. It's like, she gives it her all and is uh, beautiful and magnetic and charismatic. And uh, it's worth watching just to see what she's able to do in this movie. Um, Caroline, what did you enjoy about Parallel Mothers? Well, it's funny because I actually think maybe some of the things you didn't like are perhaps what I did like. I think I really went in expecting this to just be a story about motherhood and the way then it became a story about the Spanish Civil War or even more broadly, just like our connection to the past and how things can ripple through history. That was Mm -hmm. so unexpected to me. And I found that like really engaging if even if like you, I don't quite know all of the history behind what was happening. It felt so personal and so unique that I think it really sucked me in and and made me want to learn more. Um, so for me, I really liked that kind of strange mixing of tones that it was doing. Yeah. I, I That was kind of my reaction too. It's like, I wish I knew more so I could understand this movie on a deeper level. So it did make me kind of, it did spur me to want to learn more. But um, I would say it's worth checking out. You know, especially if you're an Almodovar fan or if you're a Penelope Cruz fan, like, I think you will be rewarded by this movie. And uh, Almodovar, I don't feel like he's a super uh, visual filmmaker. Like, there's not that many shots that I think are particularly interesting. But what he does do in the movie is allow the performances to really breathe and and really uh, and put the focus on the actors and the work that they're doing. And... Um, and they all do pretty amazing work in this movie. So, like, uh, I uh, overall enjoyed it. Would recommend it. So, Parallel Mothers. It's available on uh, video on demand. You can buy or rent it. I think uh, I bought it on uh, streaming, and so watched it that way. I also had a chance to check out the first three episodes of Atlanta, which is streaming right now on Hulu. It's also airing on FX. This is season three of Atlanta. It has been four years since the last season of Atlanta uh, season two of Atlanta, in my opinion, was a masterpiece. Uh, have any of you had a chance to watch season two of Atlanta? Mm-hmm. I have not. Um, and I also saw the first two episodes of season three as well. 
What did you think of season two of Atlanta, Caroline? You know, what I mainly think is it's been a really long time since I watched it. And my main thought re- watching the beginning of season three, I was like, I need to go back and rewatch those first two seasons because I kind of forgot how engaging and unique and like weird the show is. So <laughs> mainly it was it inspired me to go back and do like a full Atlanta rewatch. Yeah. And and what did you find from the rewatch? Or, or you haven't done it yet? No, it like. but yeah, I just felt it. it made me. <laughs> Yeah, it just made me feel like reappreciate like what the show is doing and how unusual it is in its approach. Yeah. I mean, one of the unusual things about Atlanta is in general, when you're watching Atlanta, you have no idea what you're going to get that episode, right? Like it's almost like an anthology show. Like each episode almost focuses on a different character uh, it, it almost feels like non-linear. Like it doesn't even feel like it's being told in a linear fashion. It doesn't feel super serialized. It's very episodic, in my opinion. Um, you do get a sense of who these characters are, and uh, and do grow attached to them, and and concerned and invested in their fates. But yeah, it's really unique, and I think season two is incredible. Like every episode in season two, maybe like or maybe like eighty ninety percent at worst is like a banger. It's just. It is so good. If you have not watched Atlanta, uh, check it out. Season one and two streaming on Hulu. Season three airing right now. I thought the first two episodes or first three episodes of season three were very, very good. Not quite as good as the heights of season two, in my opinion. And really bold and audacious. Uh, Just particularly season three, episode one is opens in a way that just like you just don't even could never predict and doesn't go where you think it's going to go. Uh, and I guess I'm just, I have some more thoughts, but Caroline, I'm curious your reaction to Atlanta season three, episodes one and two. Mm-hmm. Yes. Episode one is almost like just a standalone. Yes. Like fable, like dark fable or something, which is, I think was interesting and engages with recent history in an interesting way. I kind of feel like I haven't fully even like parsed my reaction to it yet. Cause it's kind of like a charged. Yes. You know, subject extremely matter. sort of troubling. Um, yeah, story. yeah, yeah. That's, that's based off of a real life event. Yeah. So, but I think certainly speaks to the boldness that Atlanta has in yes. terms of as you're talking about mixing things up. And then it was episode two really that made me like. I think I had forgotten how attached to all the characters I was just because it's been so long, and that that episode felt like a nice like welcome back into the world right like oh yeah i want to spend time with like darius doing whatever his weird thing is and um (laughs) yeah so yeah that that episode i think was a little more grounding in terms of just like remembering the sort of warmer parts of the show in addition to i think sometimes in my mind i remember like the weird teddy perkins elements which are great but but you kind of want something else to sort of ground it so episode two is a nice like grounding force i feel like Season three of Atlanta has two targets. Um, number one is part of the thesis, insofar as I can tell that there is one, is I think people may or may not have a misconception that like racism is only a problem in America, right? Or that it is a distinct it is a distinctly American issue and that like maybe it exists in Europe, but it's certainly not as bad. And what Atlanta season three presumes is, uh, what if it is? Or what if it is also problematic in these other ways? Uh, And that has been a focus of the first three episodes. And another focus, honestly, is the good intentions of uh, liberal white people. 
and how their decisions uh, and the way society treats them can often lead to catastrophic results. Uh, that has been another theme I've sensed from season three. So it is really biting. It's very trenchant. It is, it honestly reminds me of like Master of None season three as well, which, you know, uh, came back with like a very, it's it's not quite the same because Master of, season, uh, Master of None season three was like the entire season was a very different format, style, story than anything that had come before. And that was the whole season. Whereas Atlanta, after season three, episode one, seems to be getting back to where it originally was uh, in the first two seasons. But it reminded me of it in the sense that like they're just coming out with uh, an episode that is going to be incredibly troubling and seemingly has very little connection plot-wise with what's come before. And you're just going to have to accept what it is uh, is dealing out. And I think it's the sign of a confident show. Uh, it's a sign of a great show. I'd recommend it. It's Atlanta season three. Caroline, any other thoughts before we move on? There's a little bit of a time jump in the in the show. It feels yes. like the characters are in a different place than they were when we, when we last saw them. And I actually really liked that as a sort of like a refresh of its own. Right. And I think it's interesting to watch these characters who were kind of defined by like struggling in the first two seasons sort of at a level of like real career success. And it's like interesting to see them in a it was a smart thing to do, I think, to give them like new stories to deal with this season. Right. I think it it felt like they had already, maybe they, the creators, felt like they had already explored what they could with the previous dynamic, right? And mm-hmm. obviously, every single actor in the show has grown massively yeah. in terms of their fame since then, right? And so it did feel right to me that they're going to spend more time exploring what challenges fame brings with it. Um, and so it does seem like it's going to be a, a long-running theme of season three as well. So, uh, so agreed. Uh, good time jump. Um, but yeah, it, it is going to be very disorienting if you go straight into season three, episode one, without having like rewatched or reread or watched the recap of seasons one and two. Um, but I would recommend checking it out. So that is Atlanta season three, and it is airing right now on FX, and you can stream it on Hulu. Hey, I got to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, NordVPN. Do you use a VPN? You should. For security, you know all about that. What about for TVs, movies, and other content? Yeah, you can access TV content, movie content, all the stuff you want to watch from anywhere. Don't miss your favorite content when traveling abroad. Stay at home virtually. It just takes a click. Open the map, click on a location, and you'll be connected in seconds. It's that easy. You can find streaming platforms at a lower price. A platform isn't available in your country. Simply change your virtual location. Even better, there's no more bandwidth throttling. NordVPN encrypts all of your traffic so your internet service provider can't slow down your streaming speed. What about gaming? A game isn't available in your country? No problem. Just change your virtual location and buy it. You can find discounts and other reasons. You have 60 countries to choose from. It's so easy to use and has amazing speed. It is confirmed by speed tests that NordVPN is the fastest VPN out there. That's why I use it. I don't want to be any slower using a VPN. Six devices on every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, macOS, Linux, even your Android TV supports NordVPN. And you can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com filmcast 
to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and threat protection and an additional month free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com slash filmcast, N-O-R-D-V-P-N.com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Caroline, you've been watching a few things. I have. I've got I've got two TV show wrecks and one movie to keep uh, an eye out for. Um, so I'll go from heaviest to lightest here. The the first TV show I want to recommend is Hulu's The Girl from Plainville, which stars Elle Fanning. This is one of like many of this year's sort of ripped from the headlines TV shows, and this one's like about a pretty dark sort of tr- true crime story that happened within the past couple of years, where um, there's a teenage boy who dies by suicide. And then it comes out that his sort of long distance girlfriend had been leading up to the suicide had been like texting him, encouraging him to do it, which I think sounds like a very, like obviously a very salacious story. I think that's why it became one of the big, you know, true crime stories where people were following the trial of this girl. And um, I, I think the first episode of girl from Plainville leans a little bit into that sort of like salacious nature of it. But what I, ultimately loved about the show which i've now seen there's three episodes of it out so far i've seen screeners for most of the rest of the season and what i love about it is it it ultimately becomes less salacious and more just like looking at this as a human tragedy and sort of all of these small tragic components that led into this like very bizarre upsetting situation that is not as like black and white as maybe the description might sound And in particular, I think it's a very, very smart show about texting, like uh, texting as a way of communicating and the way the show document or sort of like presents texting is it will, it will, you know, start with somebody texting on their phone, but then it becomes, you just see the two characters in the same space, like having a very intimate conversation. And then all of a sudden someone will sort of jar them out of it. And we jump back to just like one girl sitting alone in her bedroom. And I think it really captures like the intimacy of texting and then how weird it can be that also it's like you can be taken out of it and you're just back in your normal world and like sort of how much that way of communicating can shape people's lives and relationships and like teenage relationships in particular. So it's obviously very like tough subject matter, but I think it's very sensitively presented with like uniformly great performances. So I would highly recommend the girl from Plainville. Yeah, um, I've heard decent things about this show. There's also a HBO documentary called I Love You Now Die uh, that was directed by Aaron Lee Carr that was about this. Did you have a chance to see that by any chance? No, but my sister watched that and she was a huge fan and she actually was concerned that the show would not do as good a job as the documentary did. And now she's watched the first couple episodes of the show as well as the doc and she thought it, her word at least, is that it's doing a pretty good job of presenting as balanced a view as the documentary did. Cool. Yeah. I I think ultimately what these stories do is they complexify what is like strikes people from headlines as like Mm -hmm. a fairly simple story. Like this, this girl did a terrible thing and like she should be punished for it is, is like, I think the the sense that many people got reading about the story. Right. Um, But that the documentary and the show now, the girl from Plainville make it like more complicated than that. Uh, And I think that's in general a good thing. 
speaking of real life stories, Caroline, you also had a chance to check out something else based on a true story, right? I did. Yes. I figured if I was going to see one Jared Leto vehicle, I might as well go all in and watch his other big project that's that's happening this month, which is called We Crashed. This is an Apple TV series with Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway playing the like utterly ridiculous people that started the WeWork co-working space. In one um, of these things, Jared Leto plays a blood-sucking parasite. <laughs> and the other, he's Morbius. <laughs> yeah i mean yes. there are ways in which i feel like he f- definitely seems more like a weirdo vampire and we crashed than he, he and anna hathaway both and we crashed have big like vampire vibes <laughs> like vampire, we a lot of vampire energy and we want to yeah control people um and they give him these bizarre dark contacts to, to make his eyes darker anyway i kind of like am enjoying this show i i think it's like pretty almost like a dark comedy as much as it's sort of like documenting the rise and fall of this tech company. I would say it's better than inventing Anna, which was like the Netflix scammer show, not quite as good as the dropout, which was the Hulu scammer show, but like right in the middle, a good, like engaging, well-acted, well-produced like thing you can kind of throw on and enjoy and, and laugh at like the utter ridiculousness of these rich people, like trying to manifest things in their lives and, just, you forgot super pumped in there. Yeah, yeah, I still need to get to that one. There's but. a this is a full-on subgenre at this yeah, point. Yeah, and and not only that, but like seemingly emerged out of no not out of nowhere, but like has emerged in full strength in just the last 2 months basically, yeah, right? Like they all arrived all at of the these same things time. have hit at once. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say this one like like a lot of them it feels like I mean, honestly kind of like comfort watch, right? Like it's sort of like rich people doing ridiculous things and it's kind of fun and it's not that challenging. So yeah, I would say it's one of those things where like, if you have Apple TV plus like throw it on, you'll have a good time. If you don't probably, you don't need to go subscribe to that just to watch this show. I would say better Jared Leto performance than Morbius though. If you're specifically in it for Leto, I would go for we crashed over Morbius. High bar, high bar. Yeah. But Leto yeah, heads. That's... Leto heads take note. Yeah. <laughs> We Crashed is airing on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Caroline, you also had a chance to go to South by Southwest recently, right? Yes. And so I just have one thing to shout out, sort of to keep an eye on for the horizon. It's coming out, I believe, April 22nd. It's this movie called The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. And the premise, the premise of the whole movie, is that it's Nick Cage playing Nick Cage, um, a, like, heightened version of himself although like question mark is he you know like what is a heightened version of nick cage is this just really how he is and he uh is in financial trouble so he gets invited to perform at a like a million billionaire's birthday party for some money and then there's an sort of an action element that gets roped in as well um a very surreal movie i think anyone seeing this in any context will find this movie surreal I happened to see it at the South by South world premiere where Nick Cage was in the audience. And that was maybe the most surreal thing I've ever, or probably will ever be a part of in my life. Uh, Just because the whole movie is Nick Cage up on screen, essentially like making fun of lovingly homaging his own career. And I was sitting in like in the same row, but an aisle over as Nick Cage himself. And, 
you know, I want to, I want to remain professional and, and be there in my film critic way. But even so I couldn't help occasionally just like looking over to be like, how is this man reacting to an entire room of people just, (laughs) you know, like just cheering raucous, like celebratory attitude of, you know, there's a line where they reference the movie Mandy and the whole audience just like exploded in appreciation for that movie. And just, I think anyone will enjoy this movie for, it's surreal comedy, but I will always treasure the <laughs> memories of being in that especially surreal uh, premiere environment. Uh, so it sounds like you're a fan of the movie. You'd recommend it, yes? Uh, although it sounds hard to, to separate from your experience yes, of the festival. Yes, I think that that is kind of where I landed ultimately <laughs> is it's hard to separate. I think, yes, I think that I would recommend this movie. I think especially if you are in any way a Nicolas Cage fan, like it basically references any every movie he's ever made. So I think people that are even casual Nick Cage fans will will find that really entertaining. Vampire's um, Kiss, is that mentioned? You know, I don't remember specifically, but I feel like almost probably, yes. Got because the, like there's a Croods 2 reference. That's kind of how like deep wow. cut some of this stuff goes. And uh, a really great Pedro Pascal performance too. Like genuinely really great performance from him. So I would say definitely recommend um, unbearable weight, although I'll probably have to see it again in a less surreal environment to like fully give my critical opinion. But I think it will be a fun, a fun summer watch for people. That's the unbearable weight of massive talent. It'll be out in theaters later this month. I am curious, like what is your guys's perception of Nicolas Cage as an actor these days? Like, how do you think of him in your head? I just watched the rock recently Mm -hmm. and I still love that movie. It's one of my favorite action movies of all time. To me, The Rock was kind of like, you know, the the real christening of Nick Cage as like a mass market, full blown action star, right? Um, that was like, I think that movie came out before Con Air, and then of course he went ended up making like Ghost Rider and a bunch of other movies after that. And but to me, like The Rock was kind of, you know, the first one of like Nick Cage action star, at least the first one I had seen. Um, he had just won an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas prior to that. Uh, and, uh, and then he did face off afterwards. Uh, actually I think it was the same, no, no, the year after the rock came out was face off. I, I feel like, I think it was community that did, uh, a bit about Nick Cage and how like he is simultaneously like terrible, but also amazing at it. That is like what makes him special is that he's so over the top, but that over the top is like so singular that it makes him super compelling. Caroline, what do you think of like Nick Cage as, as an actor these days? Yes. I think that this movie, I think unbearable weight really reaffirmed for me, the sense that maybe I've always had that Nick Cage is himself a little bit in on the joke. Like even in his most heightened performances is, is aware of what he's doing. And I think that's an engaging quality that maybe sets him apart from other people that are just doing a bunch of the kind of like, I don't know, like a John Cusack doing a bunch of direct to video kind of action movies or whatever. Um, I think that there's a certain like weird edge to cage that's always been there that even in his like hackier work does kind of set him apart and make it engaging. And like, I don't know, almost like a little bit of a meta way, even in the like the National Treasure movies or whatever mainstream thing he's doing, like he manages to give that little weird edge that I think is makes him a really fun singular actor. Yeah. Jeff Kanata, any thoughts on Nick Cage these days? Yeah, I think I agree with what Caroline said. I think he um, I don't think it's a put on. Right. I think mm-hmm. the, the we all can sort of sense his 
authenticity with regard to that, that he's not, there's no artifice in that, um, in that, in that ambition, you know, in that, um, uh, it's ex- pure. You're watching yeah, something pure mm-hmm. when you the see it. The extent to which he is committed to whatever it is, even if the thing is ridiculous, is authentic. It, it really does feel like he is all in regardless. I mean, all the way back to Moonstruck, right? That's a weird performance in that movie, too. <laughs> so weird and yeah. so good. And I think that's his first movie, right? Certainly um, an early one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, I, you know, I, he, you know, I remember reading um, uh, um, an interview about um, um, being John Malkovich, um, where, um, what's his name? What's the name of the writer of that movie? Uh, Charlie Kaufman? Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman was saying, like, you, you can't, it can't be just anybody. It had to be John Malkovich, because there's, like, something about John Malkovich, you know? Yes. And I feel like Nick Cage is in that category, where there's something about him Mm-hmm. That we all sense that is peculiar, but also really real. Really, mm-hmm. it, it, there's a it's none of it's a put on, right? It's it, it, that oddity, that intensity, that that passion, and everything you read about his real life is like Nick Cage owns you know the skull of a Tyrannosaurus <laughs> Rex or whatever it is. You know, um, it it, it just feels like he is an a person who lives uh, a little out of step with everything else at the same, you know, at the same time. So I think that comes through in his performances and I, I sort of respect it. I'm not always a fan of his work, but I'm always intrigued by it. Indeed. Uh, also, he would go on to play Charlie Kaufman in adaptation. That's true. Three, yes. three years after being John Malkovich. Right. So anyway, great movie. Uh, that's the unbearable weight of massive talent. Uh, and again, it'll be on theaters later this month. One last question, Caroline, before we move mm-hmm. on. Um, and that is like, you went to South by Southwest, like in person this year. I did. Yeah. What was the, have you been before? And like, what was the vibe? Like, I'm just so curious. Yeah. I had never been before. So to, I don't have a huge amount to compare it to, but I would say it felt very like active and packed and like a, a very much a feeling of like, quote unquote, getting back to normal, um, mm-hmm. which in some ways was nice. In some ways, there would be environments where I was the only person wearing a mask, and that part <laughs> of it was a little bit yeah. overwhelming. Um, but I, I do think it was a very cool, fun, overwhelming experience in which I you know, got to see this premiere of this wild Nick Cage movie with Nick Cage and then got to go to a Dolly Parton concert and do a lot of those kind of what feels like once-in-a-lifetime experiences, which I think people – that were there, there was like a real appreciation for that sort of the specialness of it, probably because it had been gone for a little bit. Very cool. Well, thanks for sharing. And that is what we've been watching this week. Let's get to some weekly plugs. Weekly plugs is part of the show each week where we plug something else we've been making. So, if you want to hear me spend two hours talking about Oscars-related materials, <laughs> boy, do I have the culturally relevant episodes for you. Uh, I had a chance to chat, chat with uh, writer Terhaka Love uh, about the slap. And specifically, I was curious, why were people pro-slap? Like, there was a bunch of people that, that seemed pro-slap, or at the very least, not anti-slap. 
And I was very curious at that perspective. And I was grateful that Terhaka Love was able to provide it for me over on Culturally Relevant. I also had a chance to chat with, uh, chat with Jen Yamato over at the LA Times. She wrote a very thoughtful piece about licorice pizza. There are two to three minutes of like terrible racist material in licorice pizza out of the two plus two hour, 15 minute long runtime of licorice pizza. And uh, I've been thinking about those two minutes a lot and been thinking about the reaction to those two minutes. And uh, I was grateful to have a chance to chat with Jen Yamato about that and about the movie and about the reaction. Uh, And I really uh, would recommend you check these episodes out. It's kind of my way of closing out the Oscar season is with those two episodes of culturally relevant. And hopefully now that I'm purified, I need not think or talk about those things ever again, but we'll see. Check those out at culturally relevant podcast. Caroline, what's your weekly plug? Well, earlier we were talking about uh, short-ass films and how much we love them. One of my favorite short-ass films, I would say arguably the greatest short under 90 minutes or about 90 minutes film ever made is When Harry Met Sally, uh, which is a film that I covered on my podcast, which is called Role Calling. R-O-L-E is how role is spelled. We pick an actor that we love and we go through five films in their filmography. When Harry Met Sally kicked off our Meg Ryan series, which we're just about to wrap up with You've Got Mail. So if you like short movies, if you like rom-coms, if you like Meg Ryan, come join us on Roll Calling and, and hear all about those wonderful topics and some wonderful short films. All right. Jeff Kanata, your weekly plug? I finished The Dungeon Run this last Wednesday. It was my last episode on the show after 115 uh, four-hour episodes. So we did uh, well over 440 hours of a show uh, and it was one story that I crafted uh, alongside the cast and uh, it is the thing I am most proud of in my entire career. Uh, I I put my heart and soul into that story uh, and I'm extremely proud of it uh, and it's finished. There was many times when it looked like we weren't going to be able to finish this story that I had that I had crafted uh, with a bit a lot of big surprises that were built into episode one and didn't pay off until past episode 100. Um, and, you know, we, we survived being canceled on one network and moving over and starting it on our, on our own on Twitch and continued on. And, and now it is, uh, it is done. And uh, my time on the wall has ended and I am, I am very proud of it. So. Congratulations, to... Jeff. Thank I you. I know it was something you poured hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of your life into. Yeah, it was all consuming over the last three yeah. years. It it consumed every part of my life to the point where it was a detriment to my family. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, I've never I've never worked harder on anything, and I've never been prouder of anything. Um, it is, you know, it, it's grand, epic fantasy storytelling, uh, and and it reinforces the themes that I believe in: empathy and trust and um doing difficult things in a harsh world um and i i'm i'm really really proud of how it all played out and i had an awesome team of people but anyway i bring that up to say if you're one of those people that is waiting for something to finish to be able to binge it hey why not give it a shot uh it is all available on youtube it's all available on twitch and it is all available as an audio podcast it works great as an audio podcast as well. It works like a uh, an audiobook. I did 
probably 200 voices uh, over the course for, for all the characters that I played over the course of the three years. Uh, the players are doing voices. Um, so it really does play like a, an audio book. And, um, you know, people who really give it a chance come away uh, feeling that it is um, very rewarding. So maybe be one of those people or at least give it a shot. You can find it at twitch.tv slash the dungeon run or on YouTube or where you get podcasts by searching for the dungeon run. Congrats again, Jeff. I know it's very emotionally draining to like complete something like this and move on to another thing. Yeah. Right? It has been, it's been quite a week. I mean, I was, yeah. uh, there was a lot of tears in the last episode and the audience, um, they made, they wrote songs and, and recorded uh, videos uh, and we played them on the last episode. And I mean, the community for the show has really been extraordinary and has contributed to the story and has contributed to the experience of making this thing over the course of three years. It's so, yeah, it was a, it was a very emotional week. I appreciate you saying that. All right. I also want to give a few weekly plugs for this podcast. Um, you can always suggest what you want us to watch by using hashtag slash tag over on Twitter. That's hashtag slash tag. It often ends up shaping what ends up in the show. So feel free to do that. Or email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Sometimes people can't hashtag slash tag because they don't use Twitter. So they just end up emailing us. I, I do try to pass those along. Um, also, uh, if you want to support the podcast, patreon.com slash film podcast is how you can do that. Sign up for ad free episodes or exclusive after arcs. And if you want to support us, but you don't uh, want to give us any money, that's completely fine. We don't want anyone to donate if it in any way causes them any financial hardship whatsoever. All you got to do is go to Apple podcasts, leave a star rating or a review for us or on whatever platform you're using. Uh, that would help us out a lot. So we'd really appreciate all of that. All right, those are all of our weekly plugs. Hey, I got to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor, Masterclass. Oh, I love this sponsor because I love Masterclass. What an incredible repository of the coolest people talking about the coolest things. Masterclass lets you learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. You can learn Filmmaking, I know you're listening to this podcast because you love movies, you love filmmaking. Oh my gosh, the number of people on Masterclass talking about filmmaking. You got James Cameron, you got Aaron Sorkin, you got Ron Howard, you got actors like Samuel L. Jackson and Natalie Portman and freaking Helen Mirren. I mean, the list goes on and on. I would be here for an hour telling you about all the cool filmmakers, entertainers, actors, writers that are just in that field. But man, what I love about Masterclass is that it's got so much more. It's got cooking classes. It's got negotiation classes, writing classes of all kinds. You know what I just watched? The most recent one I just watched? Metallica, How to Be a Rock Band. Am I going to be in a rock band? No. I mean, sorry, 14-year-old Jeff, you're never going to be in a rock band. But guess what? I love Metallica, and I loved watching them talk about what's important to them, breaking down songs that I love. This is incredible. They have over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors. I guarantee you the thing that you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. 
And the coolest thing about this is it works in your time. You don't have to watch an entire masterclass in any one sitting. You can sit down and, and watch things 10 minutes at a time. It's incredible. You can watch it on your laptop, on your phone, or your TV. And they have the new audio mode where you can listen in your car or while traveling. It works great that way too. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a Filmcast listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash filmcastpod right now. That's masterclass.com slash filmcastpod for 15% off Masterclass. Let's get to our review of Morbius. You need a doctor? I am a doctor. I should have died years ago. People all over the world have my disease. I'm here to find a cure. We have to push the boundaries, take the risks. If you're gonna run, do it now. People are strange. Dr. Michael Morbius, you've been missing for two months. When you're a stranger. Then you were found on a container ship that washed up off Long Island. Faces look ugly. When you're alone. That was from the trailer for Morbius, newest film from director Daniel Espinoza. I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Biochemist Michael Morbius tries to cure himself of a rare blood disease, but he inadvertently infects himself with a form of vampirism instead. I hate when that happens. Yeah. I know. One of those stories. Indeed. Caroline Sita from Fox Digital and Roll Calling Podcast. What did you think of Morbius? Um, I thought it was bad. <laughs> and I think even more so, I thought it was boring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I did, I, I don't know. I'm not usually one who like struggles to stay awake during movies, but there were a couple moments in this where I was like, ooh, I could just, if I was slightly sleepier, I could just doze off, which does not seem like you want the reaction to be for your superhero vampire movie that's sort of trying to ape the craziness of the Venom franchise. Like mm-hmm. It feels like boring should not be the word that applies to this, but I don't know. It reminded me of some of those, like some of the later X-Men movies, like New Mutants or Dark Phoenix, where you kind of see them. And if it's like, did you see them? <laughs> did they exist? Are they anything? They're just like in one ear out the other. And that was largely my experience with Morbius, I would say. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that has been delayed, I think, six times. It was originally supposed to come out in July of 2020. It's been pushed back multiple times, mostly because of COVID. Most recently, it's supposed to come out in January of 2022. Got pushed back for a variety of reasons, uh, probably to give some room for Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, maybe for COVID reasons. Who knows? Uh, But this is a movie, folks, that is like, I I compared it to like Big Bang Theory, you know, like... This is a movie I literally don't know a single person in my life who is looking forward to watching this, who watched this movie, other than you folks here on the podcast, and who liked it. But the movie still made $39 million at the box office this weekend. It was number one. Uh, I think it's made over $80 million worldwide. 
it's fascinating because it's a movie that seems to have no residual presence in people's minds and yet is still number one at the box office. Jeff Kanata, your thoughts on Morbius? Well, Dave, I guess you could say my thoughts on Morbius are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Do tell, Jeff. Do tell. I guess you can say <laughs> it's a success. But this film is not a total mess. It may not be the worst, but this universe feels like it is just more BS. Which, <laughs> let me tell you the experience I had crafting that limerick over many, many hours, only to hear Dave use the same joke to open the show. Mm-hmm. I guess I should have used less BS. One of those crushing soul moments. And then, if you, you probably don't recall, but... I had a singular experience at the beginning of the show where you were like, yeah, no, it's great. If we, had, we, we did come up with the same ideas, it means we're all simpatico on this podcast. Yes, and I'm like, yes. there I am, simpatico. Yes, we are, we are simpatico. Yeah. We are simpatico, Jeff. Simpatico, Dave. Uh, like a, I actually a didn't vampire think- Vampire and his bat best friend. Yes. <laughs> I actually didn't think this was uh, the garbage movie I expected. Um, I, um, I mean, it's not good, but it's- I'll take it over either Venom film any day of the week. Uh, and I know there are folks who are like, well, at least Venom's interesting. At least, at least, the, you know, say what you will about. The tenets uh, of Venom. Yeah. The, uh, at least it's an ethos. Right, exactly. I, I, I'm in, I, honestly in shock that you think this is better than Venom, to be honest. It, it is better than Venom. I this think. is completely soulless, yes, in my opinion. But it's competent. It's competent and it is, it's not stupid. It's just bland. It's just paint by numbers. And maybe that's a worse offense to some. It sounds like to Carolyn it is. And that's fine. I think that that's a perfectly legitimate position to take. For me, I can understand someone going to this movie. You know, at a certain point, I, I, I said to myself walking out of this, I kind of don't even know how to review this. Because like, you know, what do you expect from movies? You know, there are people who just don't, who just sort of want something that holds together and has some action and, and is spectacle. And this movie has all that. There's some decent cool moments. You know, this movie is not devoid of interesting things and it also doesn't insult the viewer. There's some actually, I think decent performances. Uh, Nothing, nothing is, is on the face of it. Stupid. I can't say that about Venom. I think, especially the second Venom movie. The first Venom movie is just sort of like, what even is this? But the second Venom movie is just an insult to movie. Well, there is this kind of juvenile humor to Venom, right? Like, I suppose. Because Venom, the parasite, has. I thought thought that's what you're referring to. It sounds like not really. Because Venom has this kind of personality where he's like, you know, he's he's got he talks like this, and he's like, yeah, yeah, he, has, I, I, he talks like an I eighth grader. People's you know? faces, can I eat your face? Yeah, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, which, I mean, maybe that's entertaining. Uh, wasn't particularly to me, but yeah, n- nor to me. I, that's what I thought you were referring to. Like I this movie does not have that. that. I think it's yeah. more than that. I think the basic fundamental A to B to C of both Venom movies is broken. It just it doesn't hold together as a and as an experience, in my opinion. Um, whereas Morbius, at least it 
like, I kind of understand the motivation of everybody. And I kind of understand the, you know, things make sense from, you know, if you buy into the kind of boring fiction of the world, I, I get it. And there's kind of a cool discovery process and a kind of, you know, like, again, I don't want to overstate my anything good about this movie. Why it's don't not, you go marry it, Jeff? No, <laughs> I think Morbius is the best movie of the year. Um, no, I, it, it is. Um, I, I guess my expectations were so low. I had no desire to see this movie. And I thought based on some of my friends who had seen it earlier than I, and, uh, some reviews that had come out that are just, you know, running it through the trash compactor. It is not, I don't think we're, you know, uh, uh, deserving of that. I think there, I could, I could name five or six way worse movies that we've reviewed in the last couple of years than this movie doesn't make it good, but I found it watchable. And, and yes, I agree with you, Caroline. It's, it's bland. It's not particularly, it doesn't pop. And, and this notion that it is sort of this <laughs> tent pole for building a universe around it is <laughs> laughable. Uh, that is my biggest gripe. Like, We'll get to it, but there's there's a couple of post credit sequences that it's just like I'm I, I'm just sad. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, it just make me sad, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I also I I was not as uh, a terrible as an, an experience as I was expecting it to be. Mm-hmm. I think the idea that this is somehow significantly better than Venom, I I object to. Uh. I think they're... Do you recall how terrible, especially that second Venom film, that second Venom film is, David, is so bad. <laughs> to me, the I mean, okay. These movies are all put up by Sony. And Sony has now shown that they are extremely good at A, putting out these movies and them making a ton of money. B, bringing these movies in under budget. Like, relatively speaking, they are mid-budget. Morbius cost $75 million. Um, typically, a movie of this caliber at another studio could, could be double that. So it doesn't even need to do that well to be successful. Um, C, they're all under two hours long. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, like, whatever my complaints about Sony bl- uh, blockbusters, I'm thinking of Venom 1 and 2. Um, Uncharted. Uncharted. Uh, Uncharted and Ghostbusters Afterlife and now this movie, right? Like, those are the ones that have, ha- that have come out relatively recently. Um, again, they're all relatively mid-budget. They come in, um, uh, they come in, you know, mid-budget. They uh, make a ton of money and they're very short. And so they've, they've got the formula down, right? I-, I cannot argue with these movies as, like, really valuable tools of commerce. Uh, I think all of them are soulless. I think... Most of them show really severe signs of studio meddling. And to me, they all suffer from this this paint-by-numbers idea of movie making, right? Which is you have idea like archetypes, tropes, plot beats that you're supposed to hit. These characters are friends, and then they're not friends anymore. They become enemies. You know, this character is tortured, and then he has a big revelation. You know, and then decides to become good, and and so on and so forth. Like, you have these ideas of what these movies are supposed to be, and all of these movies zoom through those developments as quickly as humanly possible without putting in any of the work to actually 
make those developments happen organically. They all feel super rushed and super paid by numbers and super uninteresting as a result. Like they don't do anything to transcend genre, unfortunately. And so to me, they're all of a piece. Like I see Venom 2 and I see this movie and I think they're extremely similar, except this one's actually more boring because it doesn't have Tom Hardy in it. Um, I don't disagree with anything you said. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I I think that's right. I just think that that is of a kind of movie that has been made throughout time, right? There's, mm-hmm. There are movies that people go to and and they they seem to want that are just sort of uh, giving them the bare minimum of what it takes to be a movie. You know, I, I, I think of in the 80s and 90s, there's plenty of action films that came and went that are completely forgettable and did fairly well. And, you know, I mean, I could... I can name a, a bunch of them that it just feels like, you know, who cares about those movies, but they did well because some people just kind of want that flashy thing that they just eat popcorn and forget about the next day. And that's fine. And I think sort of viewed in that context, maybe I'm giving this movie too many benefits of the doubt. That's t- entirely possible. But <laughs> I mean, I think that, you are, but yes, viewed in that context, like it just doesn't, it's just not offensive to me in the way mm-hmm. that I, it seems most critics are framing it as this sort of offense. And I think kind of you are in a, in a sense of, of being a, a travesty. It just feels like, no, the, this movie is, is, is completely competent. It's just not special in any way. It's, but it's, I don't, I, but it's not poorly yeah. made. It's not, it doesn't insult my intelligence. It's not, it's just not particularly good. I okay. I, I think you're really exaggerating my point of view on this. I don't recall saying anything like it was a travesty. You know, I, I think I've just said all these movies are equally bad to me. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like th- this is equally bad to Venom to me. And I think maybe your your um, your extremely negative opinion of Venom may be coloring what your thoughts are on my opinion of this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I think they're all just like pretty pretty rough. And I I would say there are the significant components of incompetence to this film. Um, I think the film feels edited to shreds. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are kind of things that are brought up uh, and specifically in the trailer. There are many scenes in the trailer that like don't actually appear in the film. And they, they had a challenging time of it because I think originally, if I'm not mistaken, um, multi the uh, Multiverse of Madness movie was supposed to come out before Spider-Man No Way Home. Am I right about that? I think so. Yeah, and I and, think this was supposed to come out before Spider-Man. Right. And so it's like all these movies were supposed to come out in a different order and they had to like, like be redone. Uh, the components of them had to be redone. Probably the post-credit sequence had to be redone. And so like, I don't envy it. You know, that's like challenging to do. And, um, but I do think the movie suffers as a result of that. Um, and so ultimately I don't think it's, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm debating whether I think it's incompetent. It's incompetent-ish, is I guess how I would put it. You know, that's kind of that's kind of the, the, the feeling. It's, it's I have incompetent it. adjacent. It's incompetent adjacent. That's what I think. Because at the end of the day, you're right that like it does deliver the fundamental building blocks of a movie, right? Like the fundamental bones of a movie are there. But honestly, it reminded me a lot of Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, Jeff, a movie oh, that mm-hmm. you. 
that, reviled. That would be a perfect example of of what I'm talking about, which is like that movie is offensively bad to me. Mm-hmm. That movie is is real garbage. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to figure out like what is it that makes something offensively bad to you versus not. You know what I'm saying? And I think like uh, maybe like characters doing things stuff. completely nonsensical, yes, right? Stuff that you know? doesn't make sense, stuff that right. just or the world the building being so being really terrible. Like yes. I, I think I think this yeah, I'm starting the, the picture is starting to come into into you know focus for me as to like what, what you find offensive, right? Yeah. Um, and there's nothing laughable in this movie. Um there's nothing that that kind of uh, betrays its own logic. There's no there's no sequence where you just kind of cringe because it's so poorly executed. Like hmm. the movie is, I think, I mean, I don't even, I, I, th- this may be an overstatement, but I feel like the movie's fine. It's just, it's, it's not good. It's not, it's, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I just, <laughs> I think based on the, the buzz around it, I was expecting a, a movie that is so terrible, like Josh Trank's Fantastic Four, or, I don't know. There's, I'm sure I could think of five more that we've done in the last two years. Uh, that, but I just didn't see that. I just didn't see that movie. I was like, yeah, no, this isn't great. This isn't good. But it's also not like a movie I would make fun of. You know? Yeah, I, I will say that it is not bad in an interesting way. I can put I can put that out there. Can, I can agree with you in that regard. Caroline, any more thoughts on this? Before you want to weigh in on this before we get to spoilers? Yeah, I think what I found frustrating most frustrating about it is that i think there actually are glimmers of good things that then are not utilized well and that actually is like almost more offensive to me than something <laughs> just being outright bad yeah so it's like i don't think the lead performances are bad i actually don't think some of the theme i think some of the themes are kind of interesting and the ideas are interesting but it's like you took interesting pieces and then you assembled them in the most boring way possible and and you kind of phrased it earlier, Jeff, is like going from A to B to C, which I agree it does, but it's like it's missing the little transition point. It's mm-hmm. like it smash cuts from A to B. Yes. And you're like, I guess I can piece together what happened in between, but I there's no like feeling or humanity to it. Like I think a lot of times movies kind of live or die by those little transition points. Yeah. And so even if I could some roughly movies follow, are just those, you know, yeah, like, yeah, some movies exactly. are literally just those. Yeah. So even if I could like follow it on a plot level or I could like piece together ostensibly the character motivations, it's like, there's some interesting ideas there about like brotherhood or rivalry or human evolution or whatever, but you need to kind of connect them all in an interesting way. And the fact that it wasn't doing that is I think what ultimately I found most frustrating about it. I think that's really well put. And it's ultimately because of that. That's why I think it is kind of incompetent. You know what I mean? Like, I agree. The the points A to B, like it's there. You know, the points make sense. But like the fact that the the connected tissue is not there, it is really rough to me. So anyway, I mean, I you know our discussion of uh, Death on the Nile, like to me, despite the fact that it's a filmmaker I really admire, to me Death on the Nile feels like a bad movie. Like, bad. And you don't think this is bad? I don't think this is bad in the same way. I don't think this is a good movie. I just don't think it's... I just. I guess I, I'm, I'm struggling because I think my expectation based on yeah. the... Like, you thought this was going to be, like, all-timer terrorism. Yeah, I thought it was going to be like Josh Trank's Fantastic Four. Yeah. We just come yeah. out of it going, what 
the hell was that? Yeah. You know, like, why did anyone even think you could put that on the screen? You know? Yeah. And, yeah. But I don't think that anybody should feel that about this movie. Like, yes, it's not good, <laughs> you know, but I, but it, it, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't violate any kind of uh, taste standard, <laughs> you know, like even, even the Mortal Kombat remake, I think is not as good as this. Oh, you know what wow. I mean? It's way better than this. Huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I would go back to rewatch that. I'm never going to come back to Morbius. I just, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Maybe that's a bad poll, but I, there, I just feel like there's a lot of, I'm, I'm trying to find movies in the last <laughs> just couple just become years. a defending Mortal Kombat uh, yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, know, let's, I, let, let's get to spoilers. Let's talk right, a little bit more about this movie starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. I think the baffling decisions start right from the beginning. Um, We meet Dr. Morbius in Costa Rica. He's collecting some vampiric bats for research. Then flashback 25 years to him as a child. And I swear to you, we meet Jared Harris, who's his doctor. And it then cuts forward in time 25 years. And Jared Harris looks exactly the same, guys. (laughs) (laughs) They did not change his appearance in any meaningful way. I'm just putting that out there. I saw you tweet that and it's so accurate. I don't know why I didn't notice it when I was watching it. Other than I was so focused on the fact that Jared Leto and Matt Smith are like not the same age at all, which is fine. Like Jared Leto looks much younger than he is in real life. But as soon as I was like, wait, are they trying to say that they're the same age? I got so distracted by that that I didn't even notice Jared Harris not aging for 25 years. I think we all know that Jared Harris came out of the womb looking like that. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Uh, so, and then there's like, it's so confusing because Jared Leto has received a Nobel prize for inventing artificial blood, right? So casually tossed out there. Well, well, then they show this scene from the ceremony and then we find out later he turns it down. And it's like, well, why did why did you go to the ceremony then? And also, why would they not show him rejecting it? Like, I, I it just the whole thing, the whole movie, feels like uh, they made these cuts to just get it down to ninety minutes. Like, there was absolutely. A, why would they shoot? Why like it takes time and money to shoot a scene of a fake Nobel Prize? It, it's just like com- baffling decision after baffling decision. I didn't even mention the kid fixing the machine with a pen. You know, which is like a very, uh, what's his name? MacGyver. Tony Stark fixing, like, creating cool. arc reactor for the I thought that was cool, because I, I think that can actually work if you're, like, trying to get a battery or a fuse, like, I don't know, but electrical engineer. But I, I thought that was kind of cool. The, is the, the character in this movie, Jeff? <laughs> anyway. Well, no, ahead. I think the idea is he's brilliant on a number of levels. He's brilliant uh-huh. medically and also mechanically. The the part that I found to be uh, patently ridiculous uh, as far as him putting things together, is he he takes over the bad guy lab uh, later in the movie, uh, which is made to counterfeit money, and he retrofits the counterfeit machine oh, to yeah. be a blood machine, which is 
that oh, yeah, felt yeah, a little yeah. less uh, plausible than the <laughs> than the using well, the pen. Everyone knows it's the same the same components you need to counterfeit money or to make fake blood. Right? Well, no, he. It's not that. It's that he he <laughs> p- takes the thing out of the one thing and puts it with the other thing that they all they fit together in a different way. Yes. And all you yes. have to do is spin blood around real fast, and then all of a sudden the uh, the chimera is. Cl- works you know i will say it was very funny to watch jared leto squeeze fake blood into his mouth like it is gogurt you know <laughs> like just grab it and like consume it ravenously like gogurt yeah. um i thought all his but, st- all his stuff you know i'm not i'm not here to praise jared leto but <laughs> i thought all his stuff was all right man like he 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 did this thing where, you know, he was trying to convey the sense that he had this deep hunger and he would kind of do a shake. And I just thought it was all very natural and and, and didn't feel uh, over the time. I mean, I'd take that over whatever the hell <laughs> Tom Hardy is doing any day of the week. I'm, I am just, I'm so baffled by, okay, like, Jeff, I'm, I'm trying to prove to you that this movie is not great. And yeah, I'm probably going to fail. I, I agree it's not great. <laughs> I just don't think it's utter trash. I, I just think it's like, it's somewhere in that nebulous place where most movies that are made are, which is just sort of forgettable and not really worth anybody's time. But the, like the, the outpouring of, forgive the pun, venom that has been directed at this movie, it, 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 it doesn't make any sense to me. Like there are much worthier subjects for everybody's bile to me but mm-hmm. that's well, all i'm saying let, let's talk a little bit about the ending um on, on a couple levels okay first of all this is a movie that ends with um as my colleague patrick h wilms put it jared leto summoning a bat hadouken yeah. uh like just gathering a bunch of bats psychically and flinging them at matt smith at a very high rate of speed because he's a brother to the bats super cool are you serious? You think it's actually cool? No. Because to me, it was not set up at all. Like, <laughs> yes, there's a moment when he walks into the bat chamber and he's like, I'm communing with these bats. But like, that is not a theme that is built upon at all in the movie. You know? Well, we, we keep discovering new things he can do. Like, uh, th- what's that scene <laughs> where he feels the train a coming? And then figures out yes. that he can fly. Is that he's yeah. riding sound waves? Is that what he's I guess, doing? I guess, or like air or wind. Waves or something like but why would that? they yeah, be yeah. in front of the of the train? I guess they're pushing the air. Through yeah, the they're tunnel? pushing the air, Jeff. They're pushing. The but air. is he riding air? Like, what is he? <laughs> he puts his hand out and he feels something that makes his hand go all misty. Yeah. He's like, air is coming this way, you know? Yeah, but that's not what a bat does, right? Right? Because I always thought maybe it was the sound waves because that effect had been used to. Which, by the way, I thought was really cool. Genuinely cool. The way that I, the sound waves were visualized in the movie, I thought was was genuinely cool. Like that sequence where he's searching for uh, his lady friend and she's yeah. on that red roof for some reason. The roof that's for some reason red. Um, and, th- and as he's getting closer to her, we have that big wide shot. Like she's pulsating with the sound waves. I thought that was cool. I, I think it's okay. You know, it's it's been done in other things before, like Daredevil, the Marvel show, and, you know. Yeah, but not like um, that. Not exactly that way. Y- yeah, yeah. Uh, but also, you know what's interesting about this movie and the Bat Hadouken at the end is the screenwriters of this movie were Matt Sazama and Burke Sharpless. They were the writer, credited as writers behind the film. They also wrote Dracula Untold, a movie, by the way, that ends... With a bat hadouken. 
Like it, it, it's a fat character summoning a bunch of bats and you know slamming it down in the form of a fist. If if it ain't broke, if it ain't broke, <laughs> you know, keep the bat hadukens up. It's kind of the saying, I think. Uh, anyway, I, it's just fascinating. It's kind of like um, it reminded me of like Wild Wild West, and like it was like the producer of that film was like obsessed with the idea of gigantic mechanical spiders. <laughs> um, and like now, the question is: Is there going to be a third movie with Bat Hadouken in it? You know, that's yeah. yeah I, I think what we're all going to be looking out for. I think it speaks to that like choppiness you were saying of like why have this Nobel Prize scene? Like it feels like there's something more here. I just felt like the whole movie was like that. Like every time we would enter a new scene, I would be like, okay, what what actually happened that we like skipped over in between? Even the way it opens with him in Costa Rica and you're sort of like, okay, well, the movie will circle back around to that. But then at some point he's yeah. like, oh yeah, I got those bats in my trip to Costa Rica. Right, and I'm exactly. like, that's not, that's not how like in, 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 in media res opening, like usually works. Like usually you circle back around to it. You don't just be like, oh yeah, that happened at some other point. Exactly. And I felt like it kept doing that. It was like Matt Smith would be there and it would just be like, all the stuff would be presumed that we knew. And I was like, did we know that? Or did, was I, did I fall asleep and like miss that? Like, it just felt like I was always slightly behind piecing together what was happening. hundred percent. And that was not like a good feeling. It was a feeling of the movie, like barely being cobbled together. hundred percent agree. I think one of the interesting bits from the trailer that just like is so curious is there is a shot in the trailer of Tyrese, uh, Gibson with like a bionic mechanical arm thing on his like right arm. Like early in the movie, he says, Hey, Hey, Dr. Morbius, I really got to thank you. You like saved my arm in Afghanistan. And then we never come back to that again. But we then, also like, see in- an arm in, uh, um, Martin's a lab. We see an, mm-hmm. like a mechanical mm-hmm. arm there. I was like, Oh, she's working on a mechanical arm. That seems pretty, pretty advanced. We don't right. ever, <laughs> and there's a shot in the trailer where like in the in the movie T- Tyree Skipson and Al Madrigal like contribute nothing to the plot. Like they I they love show Al up- Madrigal though. He is he's like saves this movie on a number of levels. Just his dry sort of presence in the movie is it is completely fine. And there is nothing that they contribute plot-wise. They just basically their function in the story is to show up after Morbius is there and try to and talk about what might have happened basically. Um although they do kind of intersect with him later on. But yeah, I'm just so curious. Like, what there there was something more with like the inventing fake blood plot that was there. Yeah, even all the like the focus on artificial blood versus real blood. I could never wrap my head around that. And he, it was all the stuff of like, I'm just gonna drink the artificial blood, but it doesn't work. And then he's like, Well, where am I gonna get blood? I'm like, Why don't you just drink all of the blood that's there? That's like human blood, but it's donated. You don't need to kill anyone for it. But that never came up as an option. And like, why even have the artificial blood, right? Like that lent nothing to this movie. Right. I don't even know. It was so casual the way they were like, oh yeah, you know how you invented artificial blood and it's a world changing, like altering technology that would like reconfigure society as we know it probably. Yeah, but then like nothing came of it. The only thing I could think was like, that they wanted, like, maybe the rating for having him drink red blood was too high. So they were like, <laughs> we have to make it fake blue blood, like the way they do for, like, pads where they, like, can't have, you know, blood poured on them. So they were like, we're pouring blue liquid on there. Like, maybe that's it. Because this was also a movie that was so, there was just no blood in it at all. Anytime somebody mm. got slashed or hurt, it was, like, that very PG-13. That's an amazing theory. That's blood. an amazing theory. They're like... Well, we have to have a vampire, but we don't want to show any actual blood because this thing's got to be PG-13. 
Let's have him invent fake blood in the movie. Well, Jared Harris like gets a weird slashed or something. Oh, it's true. It's true. He does get slashed in the stomach there. Maybe they they hit the. But it limits. doesn't bleed. It like he gets slashed, <laughs> yeah. and then there's like ever so slightly like a hint of blood. But it, this is like not. Oh, it's you know it feels like part of this wants to be a gory R-rated movie, and clearly that's not what it became by any you know stretch of the imagination. Yeah, it's a hundred percent the PG thirteen thing. You're you're spot on about that. <laughs> It's 100% that, but yeah. Uh, I, 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 I find myself uh, really unhappy that I'm defending this movie. <laughs> As well, you should, Jeff. You should, you should never be able to live this down. The ending of the movie is Jared Leto's character says, like, hey, I, gotta, um, I, I have this serum that if I inject Matt Smith with it, he'll die. And I'm, I'm, making, I'm making another one for myself. You know, got to make two of them. You know, got to make one for him and one for me, right? He kills Matt Smith and then doesn't do anything to himself for reasons that are completely unexplained. Oh, it's explained. It's explained. Oh, what is the explanation? Cinematic universe, baby. (laughs) The, uh, well, the thing is also like the entire movie, he's like, how do I live with myself? Because I don't want to kill people. Like, I don't, I don't kill innocent people. Right. But then, when, when by the time we get to the post credit sequence, apparently he's figured that problem completely. He's he's resolved that issue completely at that point. Um, doesn't doesn't seem to have a care in the world by that point. Uh, so, well, that's the stuff I'm talking about. Jeff is like I don't I, I don't know if that's fair. I mean, you, you see him for two minutes in the post credit sequence. We we don't know whether he's resolved that issue or not. He's doing something completely different. Sure, that sure, day. okay, but but what about the thing about him? Like he's he's gonna kill himself. Like that he's gonna take his no, own I life. No, I agree. Because... That is that is a weird <laughs> thing to drop into the into into our consciousness and then and just then not unaddress. Yeah, he's yeah. like, I'm gonna kill myself because I can't go on because I'm too much of a monster. And then he kills his best friend. He's like, eh, I'm good. Also, uh, his... maybe he realized he could just drink the blood that had been donated that was right there that was like mm-hmm. very chill for him to take. Mm-hmm. And that was mm-hmm. a full solution to his problem. Well, also, yeah. the movie goes to great lengths to say, you know, he's not a vampire, right? The the holy water doesn't work. Like, I'm not that I'm not a vampire. I'm this other yeah. thing. And then, like, I guess he could just turn his girlfriend by drinking her blood. That was weird. Yeah. Let's talk about the post credit scenes. There's two post-credits. Travesty. They are complete nonsense. We're, we're going to have to spoil Spider-Man No Way Home to talk about these. But in the first post-credit scene, Michael Keaton's character, Adrian Toomes, shows up in the universe of the film that we're watching the whole time, right? He shows up in Morbius Universe. That in itself makes absolutely no sense because at uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, the idea was that like, Doctor Strange casts a spell that would bring people into that universe that knew Peter Parker. And so you would expect... kick out some other people that also knew. We know that the universe that we're in with like Venom and Morbius is not the one that has... That's not like the prime universe, theoretically. 616. Um, So it's like sending... Michael Keaton out of the MCU prime universe into another universe is apparently what's happened. Maybe right? it was like a give or take. It was like, we get green <laughs> goblin, but you get Adrian Toomes. Like the universe has had to balance. Yeah. In some it way. had to balance itself out. So somehow it sends Michael Keaton, uh, you know, out, out of that universe that had Spider-Man in it already 
like we know Michael Keaton's from that universe because they were in Spider-Man Homecoming together. And then we see uh, he's like in jail. He appears in jail, but they're like, they're going to let him go because there's no reason for him to be in jail because no one knows who he is in this universe. Then we see Morbius driving a car into the middle of the desert or whatever. And Vulture shows up. Uh, I don't think it was actually Michael Keaton playing him because you don't see his face, but it was like his body double or whatever. And he basically digital. says, hey, uh, what'd you say? <laughs> digital body double. Yes, digital body double, very likely. And he says, um, hey, I hear you're, you know, uh, I, I don't know why I'm here, but I think it's because of Spider-Man. Like you and I should team up. And that's like how the movie and ends. What Morbius doesn't say is Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck is that? <laughs> no explanation for why Morbius would even be interested in teaming up with Vulture. And by the way, the way Vulture got all his gear in Spider-Man Homecoming was he got it from the Chitari in the wake of the attack on New York in The Avengers, which yeah. didn't happen in this universe, the, theoretically. This movie, this, this movie and this universe does not give a shit about any of your points. About it's that. true. It's true. The... <laughs> this reminds me. Yes, I don't know, uh, Caroline, uh, how, how often you've been around a, a three-year-old, but I <laughs> I happen to have a three-year-old of my very own, and mm-hmm. it re- reminds me uh, the way the way these Sony movies, the Venom Two, and this movie's post-credit sequences have worked, <laughs> reminds me of uh, when uh, I will be sitting with uh, some other adults, you know, family members or what have you. And I, I will tell uh, a joke or a story or something funny and everyone will laugh. And then my three-year-old will want that same reaction from the adults <laughs> and will try to mimic just the sort of sounds that I made to create that reaction, you know? Uh-huh. And, and uh-huh. I'll, you know, I'll say something like, yeah. And then, you know, we went out for breakfast and everybody will yell. And then my three-year-old will be like, breakfast and it, you know want that <laughs> that response from everyone too just say just say the punch at least say it louder you know to try to get it, everybody to say that that is what sony's post-credit sequences are trying to do it's mm-hmm. like uh, marvel constructs this beautiful amazing <laughs> multiverse this this way of bringing all the spider-man and spider-man villains together and and sony's like uh, venom and and vulture too <laughs> that's a, an excellent analogy jeff thank you it's the the only thing you've said during this whole broadcast or this review <laughs> that, that i've cogent in any way yeah <laughs> not that was cogent that i agree with you um <laughs> i'm it, kind of willing to to just kind of set the post credit scenes aside or like at least not hold them against the movie as a whole what i cannot get over and maybe this is unfair, but I cannot get over that the trailers sold Michael Keaton as being like a lead character in this movie. Yeah. Like half of the ad campaign is just is all these scenes of Michael Keaton, like seemingly talking to Morbius. <laughs> and I don't know if there was a version of the movie that included that and got cut or if this was always just a lie. But I was like, that is so audacious to lie like that. You know, when he's only in the post credit scene, like, I really could not get over that that was how they advertised the movie. It, it, it's it's like what Jeff just said, but writ large with the movie's marketing campaign. You know, it's like we want to be associated. We are in association with Marvel. That's how the movie opens. Yes. In association yeah. with Marvel, not Marvel Studios. 
Um, but they want the halo of Spider-Man No Way Home. They want like all the goodness that comes, that radiates out of being associated with Marvel, but without putting in any of the work, right? Um, and they're willing to actively deceive you about what is in the movie to do that. And I don't think they should be rewarded for that, Jeff. You no, know, not, you no, know, sure not, no do call, I. Call me controversial, but I don't think they should be rewarded. I, I'm telling you, the biggest travesty of this movie is the post-credit sequences. They are insulting and uh, awful. Uh, I don't have that particular uh, uh, complaint because, of course, I didn't watch any of the trailers. So I, I didn't have, yeah. even have that expectation. The fact that Michael Keaton shows up at all was a surprise to me. And yep. one I did not welcome. I was like, get out of this, Michael <laughs> Keaton. You're too good for this. Don't sully yourself in this Sony universe. Come on, you're in the good one. You're in the one that actually people like. Don't do this. <laughs> my uh, again, my colleague uh, Patrick Williams pointed out that Michael Keaton appears in the Spider-Man Homecoming post credit sequence as well. I don't know yeah, if you call that. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he, there's another guy and he like, he says to him like, we should team up. Uh, and we never saw that team up happen either. He's really, I don't, I don't think just, we're going to see this team up. Happen he either. really wants to team up with anybody. He's just, he's one just of those looking for anyone to, just team. Desperate to, to team up. But, but he also yeah. says in this one, a, an odd thing, which is, I think we can do some good, which you can interpret as being from his perspective. Of course, the villain's perspective, doing bad things is good. Or the fact that Morbius, while a villain in the comic book lore, is not at all a villain at any point in this movie. Maybe there's some weird face turn for Vulture happening here, mm-hmm. where he and Morbius are going to form some sort of super villain done good teaming up. Well, I definitely think you've put way more thought into it than the filmmakers <laughs> at this point. Just just with that last like three sentences. It it really is just like the Venom 2 post-credit sequence. It really is <laughs> promise in search of a payoff. Mm-hmm. There is mm-hmm. there is no plan to pay off any of this shit. Yes. It is it literally It reminds me ju- of the uh of the Tim Burton Planet of the Apes, you know, uh Mark Wahlberg coming like one of the most notoriously like WTF uh twi- like ending twists ever, you know, was was the end of Planet of the Apes. Um and it fits all the characteristics you said of having basically no plan to do any of this stuff in in by following up. So. Right. All right folks. Any other thoughts on Morbius? I would like to say that I actually think Matt Smith is quite good in this movie in the sort of ridiculous, heightened Tom Hardy way. Like he has a very big performance. And I think part of the reason, like I hinted at earlier, why I found this movie so annoying is because I think there's a not bad premise in you have these two boys who are bonded by a shared illness who kind of grow up together with the same father figure have what I think is like kind of coded as like a romantic connection in adulthood, but are, are like on two sides of the moral coin and then, you know, have a big confrontation. I actually think that's a pretty decent setup for like a vampire movie. I feel like vampire stuff often has like a homoerotic undertone to it. 
I think that Leto and Smith are the two best performers. I think they have really nice chemistry together. But then the movie, instead of just zeroing in on that, it's like, and then there's cops. And then, oh, he can't be gay. So he's got to have this girl that he can randomly kiss in one scene. And it just like took what was an interesting idea and put all this unnecessary stuff on it. And then the, the parts that I found interesting were like so spread out that it wasn't, you know, it just made me frustrated instead of feeling like it was a cool thing to to hang the movie on. Yeah. Well put, Caroline. Well put. Well, at the end of the day, it's still pretty impressive that Daniel Espinosa made a movie. So, yeah, it's bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of the Filmcast. Find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes courtesy of Tim McEwen from The Midnight. His new project is Varsity Blue. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker and YouTuber Kyle Hillinger. I'm sorry, Kyle Korth, I apologize. Um, and be sure to check out uh, Noah Ross's work. He's the one who did our weekly plugs music. This episode was edited by Beatty Zhang. Uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, I do just want to thank Caroline again for joining us today. Caroline, as usual, this has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you sticking around with us. Yeah, this was the. I wish it was a better movie, but the conversation was a blast. <laughs> <laughs> Check out Caroline's work at the Roll Calling Podcast. Next week, Devinder Hardwire returns. Unless there's any uh, unanticipated things that occur, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once is opening wide this Friday. Go see it! Strongly recommend you check this movie out. We will talk about it next week here on the Filmcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you later.